With this in mind, let us hear from God and his word from Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be hearing verses 1 through 9. You can uh, open up your copy of God's word if you have a Bible, a church Bible from the back that's found on page 979. So Ephesians chapter 6. Where the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Father, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same for them, and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. All right, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word, thankful for your kindness to us in light of what we've already prayed about this morning, the tragedy that has unfolded in France, the darkness around us, the discouragement, and yet here we are, safe, happy, joyful, saved, redeemed. Um, We have a lot to celebrate here this morning. Pray that you would stir our hearts afresh to these realities that are in this text. And as we think about some of these subjects, which are challenging and, and, and one of them particularly difficult, that you would give us grace this morning, that we would understand and that we would be able to apply this and that you would change us through it. And so we pray now. I pray, I ask you humbly, uh, by the power of the Spirit, that you would enable me to preach and um, to get out of the way and be undistracting, and for your people to have hearts that are receptive and hungry and eager to hear your word. And we love you and are grateful for this opportunity. Now bless us in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. We're continuing our series uh, through Ephesians, and we're really getting close to the end now as we dip into chapter 6. And uh, today we come to this final section Uh, That deals with relationships. It is what scholars call the household codes. Uh, It's kind of a technical language for for the fact that Paul is saying some things to husbands and wives about how they're to the code of ethic, how they're supposed to be relating to one another in the home. And then he dips this morning into two other subjects that are really unrelated, uh, but we're going to deal with them both in one sermon, and that is parents and children and then slaves and masters. And uh, so we're going to look at all that together. And if you remember, all of this falls under the rubric of be filled with the Spirit. In other words, your marriage is only as effective as you are filled, and that's a command to continually be filled with the Spirit. Your marriage is, is contingent upon your being filled with the Spirit, to be a good husband, to be a good wife. And and the same is true of parents and children. And the same is true in this slave and master relationship, whatever that means, which we'll get to in a minute. And so we need to understand that. We need to make sure we're still having that filled with a spirit sort of idea in mind here. And we we need to understand that proper God-appointed authority structures, as God has uh, given them to us, that we are to honor those in the fear of Christ. And we saw how that works as I said, in marriage and now in parenting and, and in this other relationship. So 
What we're going to do this morning is we're going to start actually in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6, and then we're going to end in verses 1 through 4. Because like I said, these are two different sections. So we're going to go ahead and deal with the uh, slaves and masters piece up front because that's a challenging issue. Uh, obviously, in our culture, it's kind of weird language. We're not familiar with that. Um, at least we wouldn't expect to see something like this in the Bible. So we're going to deal with that, and then we're going to get into parenting and, and, uh, and raising our children. Okay, so now this is a Bible, right? All, all, all in favor of this book? We, we like this book, right? Okay, so since we love this book, let me ask you this question. How many of you have been reading this and as you're reading, you kind of come to a spot and you're like, whoa, I have no idea what that's talking about. And you just feel like your head explodes. Like, what in the world is this saying? And how can this be in the Bible? And it's jolting and you're kind of like, is... I must be missing something here because this doesn't seem right. How can this be in the Bible? How many of you had that experience? All right, if you've had that, this is one of those texts. And we're here at it this morning. We come to this text, verses 5 through 9, and Paul gives instructions to slaves and masters, and he's exhorting them to glorify Christ and how they conduct themselves. And that's it. And you read it, and you're like, is Paul cool with slavery? I mean, what's going on here? Is he, is he down with that? What, what, what's the issue and, and that jolts us because since slavery is not a legal institution in our society, what happens is we often jump to sort of a modern day application of this text. We jump to the employee-employer relationship. And we do that as if that's what Paul's talking about. But I, I just got to tell you, that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul isn't addressing employees and employers. Now, I think that's a a fine application, maybe in a secondary sense to this text, but that is not what Paul's talking about. But here's the problem is that we're often embarrassed by what the Bible has to say concerning subjects and slavery is one of them. And so it's simply more convenient to just avoid the issue altogether and talk about employees and employers. And so a lot of times when you hear sermons on this text, that's what you hear. You hear an application about, okay, how do we apply this to the work context? And again, that's not wrong to do that. It's just, I would argue, it's just really not as faithful as you should be because the text is really not about employees and employers fundamentally. Instead, we need to understand that even as a society that thankfully, thankfully, does not have institutional slavery, we need to understand what the Bible says about slavery. So let, let me give you an example of why this is really important. Let's say you were speaking to a, uh, a friend. He was sharp. Uh, let's say they're quite sharp and, and, and well-read. And yet they're an antagonistic opponent of Christianity. And you're speaking to them and they say to you, so let me ask you a question. Do you really believe what the Bible says when it says husbands are to lead their uh, wives and to be the head of the homes and that wives are to be submissive to their husbands? Do you really believe that? And you, as a faithful Christian, say, yes, yes, I do believe that. I, absolutely, I believe that. And, uh, and so they go on, and, um, and, and they say, well, that same Bible that encourages male headship, just a few verses later in Ephesians 6, affirms slavery and tells slaves to obey their masters. So, Mr. Bible-believing scholar... I can't see for the life of me how you can reject what the Bible says about slavery, because I'm pretty sure you're not comfortable with that, and yet affirm what the Bible has to say about gender and sexuality. So is this all God's word or is it not? Are you uh, affirming some points but denying others? So do you really even believe in the Bible at all yourself? What's your standard? Now I ask you this morning, what would you say? What? Would you say, well, man, I guess you're right. You know, slavery must be okay. Is that what you would say? Well, I doubt it. And so that presses us to uh, a point where we need to know what the Bible means when it's talking about slavery and why we're able to still reject it as a social institution and not reject the Bible at the same time. Because both of those things are true. We reject slavery, and yet we affirm Scripture. So the question is, how does that work? 
So in order to understand this passage, what I want to do is give you kind of an overview quickly of what the Bible has to say about slavery. And I'm going to lean here for a minute on a friend of mine who's done some good work here, Brian Borgman, uh, who is immensely helpful to me in my preparation on this subject. So let me just say a few things for a moment uh, about what slavery, uh, sort of an understanding of slavery in the Bible, starting with the Old Testament. I just want to give you three statements up front and as a means of clarifying this subject. First, the Old Testament recognized and regulated slavery as a national and domestic institution in Israel. I want you to listen to my words carefully. The Old Testament recognized and regulated slavery as a national and domestic institution in Israel. The Old Testament established laws for slavery. Exodus 21, Leviticus 25. Now, please, what I, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Understand what I'm saying. I did not say that the Old Testament established slavery. I said that it established laws for slavery. And that's a big, big, big difference. This is similar to divorce in the, in the Bible, really, uh, which is recognized in Scripture. I mean, obviously, Jesus talks about divorce. It's recognized and it's regulated. But divorce is not something that ever pleases God. So we're not saying that God is pleased with slavery or divorce. Just because God regulates something does not mean that it is inherently good or that God approves of it or condones it. Number two, the Old Testament regulated slavery with laws like this. Slaves were to be given Sabbath rest. Deuteronomy 5. And I just want to say parenthetically, Whatever slavery we have in the Bible is very, very, very different than what we experienced in America. So important to make that point. I mean, for example, slavery in, in, in biblical times was not on the basis of race or skin color. Slaves were from all nations and all people. Number two, there's several things that were different about it. A person could sell themselves into it as a means of employment. Number three, they could pay their way out of it with a certain amount of money, there's just so many differences. So you don't need to be taking in an American grid when you think about this. But here's the thing, is that the Old Testament regulated it with things like Sabbath rest, Deuteronomy 5. In addition, God strictly prohibited enslaving people. You say, well, what does that mean, enslaving people? That means man-stealing. That means going and taking another man and owning that person for as your own property kidnapping a person and stealing another man. And the Bible strictly prohibited that. Unlike Western countries, there was no slave trade. No slave trade. Man stealing was prohibited. Now let's shift quickly to the New Testament. The New Testament assumes slavery and it recognizes it right here is one passage, but it brings to it again, Christian ethics Slavery was a reality in the New Testament. Now, don't don't anybody walk out of here this morning and say, hey, Pastor Jonathan says, hey, the Bible's cool with slavery. The Bible affirms it. The Bible says it's good. If you're hearing that, you're hearing the wrong thing. What I'm saying is the Bible is recognizing the sin that is in culture, and it's trying to curb the effects of that sin so that it's not as bad as it could be. So if anybody walks out of here and says, hey, Heritage Baptist Church is pro-slavery, well, then you're just lying because we're not saying that. And I'm certainly not saying that. I want to be very, very clear about that point. But the New Testament recognizes that slavery was a reality. At the time of Paul's writing, listen to this, there were approximately 60 million slaves. 60 million. That is tons. I mean, so that was normal life for their society. Slavery was a normal thing for them. It was like everyday thing for us. And so the New Testament does something that is absolutely brilliant. It affirms the equality between a slave and a master, which is incredibly um, hostile. I mean, an unbelieving world will look at that and say, how dare you affirm the equality of slave and master But God is like, that is what I do because I take a sinful institution created by man and I flip it on its head and I redirect it for my glory and I fix it. See? And so what he does is, this is the New Testament is absolutely brilliant. 
and, and it affirms the equality of slave and master and, and Christianizes the practice of it in such a way that it ends up, listen to this, planting the seed for its eventual destruction. That is revolutionary. And so Paul says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, or what? What else? Slave or free. There's no longer, for you are all one in Christ. Do you see what he's doing? Let me show you a powerful example of this. Philemon. Philemon was a leader in the church. And do you know what Philemon was? He was a slave owner. Philemon was a slave owner. Onesimus ran away from him. And when Onesimus has run away, he comes to faith in Christ. And when he comes to faith in Christ, Paul disciples him as a father in the faith. And Paul writes his slave owner, Philemon, and has a word to say about his slave, Onesimus. Verse 10, he says this, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, a useless slave. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a what? As a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then I love this phrase, to say nothing about all of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. In other words, you owe me, man. All right, so I'll, I'll pay back whatever Onesimus has messed you up with. I'll, I'll, I'll get you back on that, but understand this. You owe me your life, man. All right, so here's the thing. He's talking about a slave going back to a slave owner. Now, we read the Bible and we just dismiss that stuff. We act like the Bible doesn't talk about this issue. People read the New Testament and what it has to say about slavery, and they get upset that Paul did not say, just free all the slaves. Abolition. Why didn't Paul do that? If the Bible is so righteous and so godly and so holy, why didn't it just come out and just say, free all the slaves? Why wasn't it an abolitionist document? But listen, Paul was not a political activist. He was a herald of the gospel. And here's the thing. In God's inscrutable wisdom, the gospel spread like wildfire among slaves. Among slaves and among masters in the midst of a Greco-Roman slave culture. Onesimus is case in point. Christianity is not a political activist movement. It is a message of true liberation from the power of sin and Satan. So we are grateful. Praise God for abolition. Praise God for, for, uh, for, for men who led the charge in that in our country. Or for men in, like William Wilberforce who led the charge for that. Praise God. But hear me. This is what the apostles were concerned about. They saw how the gospel could transform both slaves and masters. So that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if you can gain your freedom, he's talking to slaves, go ahead and do it. But if not, rejoice that you are free in Christ. In other words, that's a better issue. That's a bigger deal. So the New Testament is teaching something really radical. And that leaves me with the following conclusions. Number one. It is naive simply to dismiss slavery as something contrary to God's decreed will. He obviously decreed that it would happen. You say, how can he do that? Well, he can decree something without being guilty of it. And if you, and if you don't understand that, you, you're just confessing you don't understand the mind of God. Duh, obviously. 
But something can happen in God's inscrutable wisdom that he's not responsible for in a sinful way, and yet he redeems it for good. Slavery was a reality, and it still is. And right now the world is facing an epidemic of human trafficking in the sex slave industry, and we must, hear me as a church, do everything we can to stop it and fight it. There was a ministry I heard about the last week at the Sojourn Network conference in Louisville. Uh, for church planters and, and pastors, and, and, and it was called Scarlet um, Thread or Scarlet, uh, I can't remember the, the, the full phrase, but it's all about a ministry of redeeming and rescuing women out of sex slavery. Amazing. And, um, and, and Owensboro is just small enough to where it's harder to do that because you've got to really sort of figure out what, I mean, where that's happening. I'm sure it's happening here. But in Louisville, it's more prominent. And so we need, I want some creative people in the church to step up and say, hey, whoa, I would like to be involved with something like that. Do some investigation, do some research, see if you can be a redeeming force. And I guarantee you as a church, we will get behind you. Our money, our resources, we will get behind you in people and personnel and manpower. But here's the thing, we can't just dismiss the fact that slavery existed in the Bible. Instead, we conclude that what man meant for evil, God used for good. Second conclusion, the Bible brought ethical standards to slavery, not as a means of condoning it, but as a means of redeeming it from being as corrupt as it otherwise would be. Here's what happens. The word of God breaks into the sinful social structure of man and works from the inside out to redeem it. It's incarnational. It's, it's mission to the city. It's like a person who moves from the east side to the west side. It's a person who moves from the su- suburbs into the urban city in order to incarnate the gospel. And likewise, the gospel moves into the institution of slavery to change it from the inside out. That's what it does. It's like, it's, it's, it's like a good disease that seeps into every facet of society and begins to sort of affect it all. Third, the Bible, with its commitment to the sanctity of human life and our inherent equality as image bearers of God, regulated slavery in Paul's day with distinctly Christian demands that, as I said earlier, end up serving as the impetus for the future destruction of slavery altogether. So God plants the seeds of destruction into that institution with his gospel so that it effectively blows it up eventually. So we can say that with, along with the Bible, we are opposed to slavery as a social evil, as something against God's intended design or will of command, which begs the question, how do we respond to the person who says, how can you say that the Bible affirms the institution of marriage in Ephesians 5, but then rejects the institution of slavery, Ephesians 6, when the Bible seems to affirm both? And this is where we need to be sharp. We need to say that in the New Testament, slavery was not, slavery, excuse me, was a recognized part of society, but is distinct from marriage in that slavery was not created by God as a creation ordinance like marriage designed by God. Slavery was a social evil that came as a result of the fall, not before it, and therefore had to be regulated by God in the Old Testament to keep it from being as corrupt as it otherwise would be and eventually redeemed by the gospel and utterly destroyed through the power and blood of Christ. That's what this text is about. It's about the gospel breaking in on a sin-ravished world and rescuing people from not only abuse and mistreatment, but more fundamentally, rescuing people from the sin that has made us all so corrupt. The gospel, see, speaks into the world as it is. And it redeems it into a new world where sin and corruption are no longer. I love that. The Bible just comes right into our mess. And it just says, hey, like, uh, we're just going to come right into all this chaos and mess, and we're going to redeem it from the inside out. And, and hear me, political activism can't do that. Abolition, as great as it is, cannot free a man from his own sin or recon- reconcile him to God. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. And it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The Jew first, and then the Greek, and also slave and free. 
So the gospel is powerful. In fact, it is so powerful that it not only liberates slaves. Think about this. It liberates slave owners. It liberates free men who are slaves of themselves. What a gospel we celebrate this morning. That's the point of this text, not employees and employers. That's a secondary application. And again, it would be appropriate to preach that. We could apply this, for example, the principles outlined in this text to uh, the work environment. And uh, that wasn't my intent this morning, because frankly, you could hear a thousand messages on that subject. And, And I just don't think this text is usually dealt with faithfully. And so I just chose not to do that. If you're disappointed because you wanted to hear something about the work environment, let me just give you what I was going to preach in terms of its outline, and I'll let you work that out in your time with Jesus this week. Really, the Bible says four things to slaves and four things to slave masters, which could be applied four things to employees and four things to employers, if you stretch it. And those four things would be this to employees. Verse 5, work respectfully. Uh, Verse 5 and 6, work honestly. Verse 7, work joyfully. Verse 8, work expectantly. In other words, you're going to get a reward. Keep being faithful. God will reward you someday. Work expectantly. And for employers, all of it's in verse 9. Care. Care for your employees. Care for them. He says, do the same thing to them. Treat them the same way you want to be treated. Number two, do not threaten them. In fact, he says, stop threatening them, assuming that this is happening. And, and the third thing is, and remember that God is watching. In other words, who's your boss? You're the big boss, but who's the big, big boss? That's God. And remember, he's watching you. All right, so that's kind of the issue that he says there, if you wanted to apply that to the work situation. All right, that's it on slaves and masters. We can talk a lot more about that, but I hope that that little overview is helpful so that you have a category for thinking about slavery in the Bible. Now, we're going to shift, completely shift gears, So moms and dads, it's time for you to perk up again. And uh, we're going to talk about parenting for a minute. And uh, children, good time to listen to Pastor Jonathan because I'm going to talk to you about your responsibilities before God. Uh, So we turn now to parents and children. Parents have a holy calling. Uh, We are called to be the primary disciple makers of our kids. Bonhoeffer said, said it well. It is from God that parents receive their children and it is to God that they ought to lead them. Tony Meridia said, our children come with a tag that reads yours for a limited time only. They're like wet cement. We have a short time to teach them and mold them. Isn't that true? How fast the cement dries. Your time with your children is so short and precious. Those who have parented and already sent their kids out of the house will be the first to come up and testify how fast time flies. Well, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. This is a present imperative, uh, which means very simply that children are commanded to continually obey their parents. So kids, hear me this morning. That means that it's not okay to say, I obeyed mom and dad yesterday, but today is a new day and I don't have to obey them today. Or I've obeyed mom and dad four times in a row. So on the fifth time, I'm going to do what I want to do. No, the Bible is telling you that you are to obey your parents all times and in every way. I like Colossians 3.20, which is the parallel text here. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And children, do you know what that looks like? It looks like this, first time obedience. First time. So if your mom has to tell you three times to do something, that is not obedience. One time. And, and, and the thing we like to say is, is one time and with a happy heart. One time and with a good attitude. First obedience, first time obedience. And then notice the phrase that this is, children obey your parents in the Lord. This is the sphere of obedience. It stresses the idea that a child's ultimate obedience is to the Lord. If a child wants to please the Lord, then he must obey his parents. Now, let, let, let's get to the youth here. Let me say a word to youth, those of you who are older. Um, the way you treat your parents in terms of honor, respect, and obedience is a really good litmus test, a good measure of your general attitude toward God. Honor, respect, and obedience to your parents is the first step in learning how to honor, respect, and obey God. If you're, chances are, if you're not obeying your parents or respecting them, you probably don't give a rip about God. 
Or conversely, if you don't really give a rip about God, chances are you probably don't respect your parents really well. There's a corollary there. And then Paul says this, obey your parents because it is right. And I I like that. The word right can be translated righteous. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is just. This is righteous. This is good. This is wise. But notice that God doesn't just tell children to obey their parents. He grounds it in the next verse. What is he grounded in? The fifth commandment. He says, honor, children, honor their, their father and mother. And children honor their parents. How do they do that? By having a proper attitude toward them. Respect for parents is a way that we show respect and reverence for God. And this command continues um, even for those of us who, who are older, right? Who, still, who have older parents. 1 Timothy 5. So let me speak to uh, adult children, if I will, if you will. You, you guys are adults. And yet you're still children, aren't you? And your parents are older and you still have a responsibility before them. First Timothy 5, Paul says that when our parents get older, we are to pay them back. It says actually we are to give them some return because this pleases the Lord. That's very interesting language, right? right so in Western cultures, we have this thing where it's like when your parents get old and, and you can no longer uh, you know, kind of help them, you send them off somewhere for help and aid. And that's not wrong, It's just different. So in Eastern countries, what they do is when the parents get old, they bring them into the house and they take care of them in the house. And I think that's probably a closer model. I wouldn't say it's sinful, obviously, to send your parents to a nursing home. But we would want to say that you can we need to do all that we can do for our own parents as we can in our own home. Serve them. I mean, they changed your diaper when you were a kid. They, they, they fed you, they nourished you, they took care of you, they paid for your education and for this and that and the other thing. And now that they're old, give them some return. Pay them back. That's in the Bible, 1 Timothy 5. Now notice that Paul enforces this command with a promise rather than a threat. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 5.16. He says, do this that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land What Paul is saying is that obeying and honoring your parents as a general rule will result in a good and long life on the earth. And that's a general principle. Now, let's turn to parents and our responsibility to children. So kids, that's your deal. Okay, You're you're to obey mom and dad first time. You're to do it with a happy heart. You are to do it because God says it is right. And if you do that, you will live a long life. Do you guys want to live long lives? Obey Jesus in that. Now, parents, parents. Uh, typically, when we read this text, fathers are talked about, and that's because of verse 4. Fathers don't provoke your children, okay? But, but really, the reality is that parents are in view throughout this entire text, okay? And that should be obvious because Paul says, obey your parents in the Lord. Verse 2, Paul says, honor your father and your mother. And even, ironically, the word translated fathers, where that verse 4, don't provoke that, that verse, fathers is translated in Hebrews 11.23 to refer to both parents. Look at Hebrews 11.23. The word you'll see there is parents. So I think that the best way to read verse 4 is to apply it to both parents. While giving special attention, yes, to fathers in particular. So Paul says... Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And I would put in parentheses, parents, don't do that. Okay, it's not like mom can, mom gets the right to provoke the kids to anger, but dad doesn't. I mean, obviously that's not what it's talking about. But since dads and fathers lead the home, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Two commands for us as parents, one negative and one positive. Let's start with a negative. Do not provoke your children to anger. Paul is saying, make it a practice to never do this. To provoke means to irritate, to create or incite anger in our children. In Colossians 3.21, Paul gives us a motivation for not doing this. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become what? Discouraged. Discouraged. Irritation caused by nagging mothers or demanding fathers in the context of everyday life will cause our children to become angry. 
And that anger grows oftentimes out of a frustration when kids feel like, you know, they can't do anything to please mom and dad. Nothing. Parents can misuse their authority either by irritating or making unreasonable demands on their kids or being harsh and cruel. Now, there's a place for discipline, obviously, but it must never be arbitrary discipline and it must never be unkind. And when it's arbitrary, just willy-nilly, just like, like right now, I'm not having a good day, so you're grounded. Well, don't take out your bad day on your kid because you're frustrated. That's arbitrary discipline. Consistency, consistency is what we're after here. And, and done in kindness. Done in kindness. John Stott says this, when you're disciplining your child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right do you have to say to your child that they need discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control is an essential prerequisite for the control of others. So I've, I'm guilty of that. I have, I have disciplined my kids in anger. And when I do that, I need to be disciplined. I can't even control myself. Think about it. When you discipline your child in anger, you're not controlling yourself. But our kids need to see not only our consistent and loving discipline, but that we're proud of them. And, and that we're encouraged with them. Because nothing causes the, the personality and the gifts of our kids to blossom more than, than the positive encouragement of loving parents. And if you build that kind of culture in your home, your kids will be safe and secure. And you will be able to speak, yes, even hard truth to them. Because they will know that you love them. Tony Meridia has a nice list of ways we provoke our children to anger. I thought this was helpful. He says... Failing to take into account the fact that they're kids. Uh, comparing them to others. Disciplining them with inconsistency. Failing to express approval even at small accomplishments. Failing to express our love for them. Disciplining them for reasons other than willful disobedience or defiance. Pressuring them to pursue our goals rather than their own God-given interest. Withdrawing love from them or overprotecting them. Those things exasperate children. Anyone guilty of those things? I am. I mean, I've only got two, four and a two-year-old, and I'm already guilty of some of those things. And, and when we do that, our children will grow angry and they'll grow discouraged. So that's the negative side. We must not provoke them to anger. But instead, verse 4, what should we do? We should bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now that phrase, bring them up, does not really do justice to the word here. The word actually means to provide or nourish, to feed. So if you be thinking about that language, feed, nourishment language. Bring them up, feed them, provide, nourish them. Is the same word used in 529 when he says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it. John Calvin says, in other words, let them be fondly cherished. As children, let them be fondly cherished. That's the idea here. And we are to nourish our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of the, Lord. the word discipline reflects the idea of training our children. The word instruction carries with the idea of teaching, of counsel, of warning. Actually, a better translation is the word admonition because it carries with that sort of that discipline component, that component of, of just punishment, of righteous punishment when necessary. But notice that this is the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Which means our training is not self-centered, but it's God-centered. It comes from the Lord. It is prescribed by God. Parents are agents of God. And therefore, we raise our children according to His standards, not according to our whims. And the primary thing that we are to be instructing our children in is Christ. It's the instruction of the Lord we give our children Jesus. And as you walk with them and play with them and eat with them, you talk about Jesus. You talk about his incarnation, his death, his resurrection. You talk about his coming, his second coming. You talk about his lordship. Speak to the hearts of your children because behavior flows from the heart. Talk about beliefs and values and feelings and motives. Talk about sin and repentance and grace and the cross. Talk about the ultimate end for which they were created to glorify God. But you have to have a relationship with your kids to do this. This is a dialogue with your children. It's not a monologue. 
And it happens through the natural rhythms of life. Now, even though Paul did not say here in the text, he did not say set an example for your children. I think that should be implied, shouldn't it? Because how can you instruct your children in just word only? You instruct your children oftentimes more by what you do than what you say. Our children learn how to worship God and obey God by watching us. So let me give you seven things that they learn from us by example. Number one, worship. Children watch how we worship God. They watch us pray and study the Bible and worship with God's people. They know, mom and dad, whether or not you're dazzled by God's grace or whether or not you're bored. You don't have to say a word. They can say, I just know one thing. My dad looks checked out spiritually. I know that. I know another thing. I never see my dad pray. I never see my mom read the Bible. Church, children observe how their parents feel about church and the value they place on gathering with God's people. If you as a dad or mom are aloof and disconnected from the church, listen to me prophetically. Listen, expect your children to be aloof and disconnected from the church the rest of their lives. Number three, relationships. Our children watch how we interact with others, whether we speak the truth in love, whether we're eager to forgive or work honestly or give generously. Mission. Your example of mission is so influential. What, what do they see you do with your time? Are they learning to value mission more than money? Are they learning to value sinners and love for sinners more than success? Do you have unbelievers in your home? Do they watch you interact with them? Marriage. Our children are forming views of marriage based on our marriages. Give them a compelling vision. Obedience. Children learn obedience and respect and submission as they watch their parents obey and submit to God. If we want them to to be obedient, they need to see our obedience to God. The gospel. Our children learn the gospel from us. We fail as parents. And that doesn't make us bad parents because we fail. It just means that we need grace. And when we fail, we must not hide our need for Christ, but confess our need for Jesus in front of our children. Because if they see us turning to Christ, they will turn to Christ. So it's crucial. Now, by doing these things, we're setting example for our children and we're raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, very quickly, um, let's turn to some practical theology as we close. And I, and I want to list for you a number of practical things that I believe are biblically grounded and give us some guidelines for how we can raise our children well. I think a lot of you are doing a fantastic job raising your kids. And I have looked uh, to you as an example of that. Um, and, and, and so, because we're obviously younger in that, and so we're seeking to emulate um, those of you who've gone before us and done that well. And so I'm super encouraged when I look upon our church and I see um, you you all, your commitment to bring your children to church, to worship with them. I just want to keep encouraging you to do that. And sometimes we get, once in a while, we get um, a situation where, you know, um, it's just, it's hard. It's just hard for kids to be in the service. And we recognize that. But you know what? You're teaching them an incredible thing when they watch mom and dad worship. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and trust me, it is making an indelible mark on them. So um, let me just encourage you with a few things here. Some of these things come from my own experience um, as a dad, and, and, um, and others of them come from Danny Aiken, who has already raised uh, four boys and sent them out of the home. Um, so let me just give you some practical things, uh, ways that we can love our children and point them to Jesus. Number one, I believe that we, we love our children by entering into their world. All right, entering into the world. This is what, what we could call incarnational parenting. And it's modeled in the way God loves us. What did God do? He entered into our world in his son, Jesus Christ. So just step back and say, right now as parents, um, I have a five-year-old, you know? I have a 10-year-old daughter. I have a 15-year-old son. How, what are they thinking about? What are they dealing with right now? How do they look at life given their age and interest and, and how God has wired their personality? How do they look at life? And, and we love them by getting down on their level and entering into their world. Now, this is easier said than done. Sometimes it's a real challenge to get into the world of a child. My son is four. It's very hard to think like a four-year-old. Um, and so, but we have to work at this. I heard a story of a little boy who, uh, whose turtle died. And he was a five-year-old boy. 
and his turtle died, and it just, just crushed his heart, just broke his heart. And uh, he cried and cried and cried, and dad comes home from work, and mom says to him, she says, honey, um, he's in the backyard, and he's just a mess. He's crying. His turtle died. He won't come back in the house. He's just standing there. He's sad. And he said, she said, you got to do something. You got to help him. You got to rescue the situation. So dad's like, oh, I'm going to be a hero here. And I'm going to go out in the yard and, and I'm going to, I'm going to get buddy and I'm going to get him excited and, and, and we'll help him through this. So he goes out in the yard and he says to him, son, real as empathetically as a father can say, son, I'm, I'm really sorry, buddy, that your turtle died. And, and uh, but I tell you what, we'll have a funeral for your, for your little turtle and dad will get a box and we're going to make, bury, bury him right here in the ground somewhere. And we're going to have a, a little funeral. And, and I'll tell you what, you can invite your friends over and we'll have a party afterward. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, do, I'll do this. I'll even get you some ice cream, buddy. And mom will go get a cake. You invite your friends over and we'll celebrate your turtle's little life. All right. And then after that, if you're, you guys are good boys, we'll take you to the park and we'll let you have some fun out there in the park. And, and uh, so the boy says, we can have a party? And, he, and I can invite all my friends, all of them? And he says, yeah, buddy. He goes, what do you think about that? And the tears just suddenly stop. And he says, that'd be all right, Dad. And just as they're heading back into the house, the little turtle sticks his head out. And the dad says, look, he's still alive. And the little boy is upset and he begins to scream, kill him, Daddy, kill him. Because if he doesn't die, I won't get my ice cream. Now, that doesn't make any sense to adults. But to a five-year-old, that makes perfect sense. Now I don't want my turtle. I want my ice cream. We have to work hard to get involved in our kids' lives, to understand them and to enter into their world. It takes time to do that. It takes effort. Number two, we love our children by just loving our spouse. Now that's just such a blatant and obvious point, but it's so important. Great marriages make great parents. Great marriages make great children. And this is because one of the most important needs in the life of a child is security. And few things bring greater security to a child than knowing my mom loves my dad. And my dad loves my mom. And, you know, they're always going to be here for me. Number three, you love your children by loving, lovingly and consistently disciplining them. We've talked about this a little bit. And as I said, my wife and I are in the early stages of learning how to discipline and, uh, and so I would encourage you to speak to others who have a track record of doing this well. Um, also, I would point you to uh, Tim Hoke's lectures on parenting. They're very helpful, and he deals with the subject of discipline. Um, I know we have asked him many times, Tina especially, what do we do in this situation? Um, it just seems like we're just confused. It's hard to figure out what to do. We have sought Tim out several times uh, for parenting advice. Um, my, my dad as well. Uh, Dad's often over the house, and we're just like, well, how do, how do you deal with this? And, and he just speaks with wisdom. And it's just like, I've been there, I've done that. And so let me give you some ideas. And it's just so helpful. So I encourage you to go to those resources. But the only thing I'll say is this, in my limited experience, is that based on scripture, that it is vital that we correct our children always in light of the gospel. Always. In other words, don't make this a moral issue only. Make it a gospel issue. Let me give you an example. When, 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 when Judah or sins, or something happens, and, and, I, and I'm disappointed with him, I need to first calm down, number one. And I don't need to lash out, and I need to walk in and set him down on a chair and say, uh, Dad's disappointed, and I want to talk to you about what's just happened. Okay? And then when we do that, I want to say, now I want you to know Daddy is the greatest sinner that Daddy knows. I'm, I'm a big sinner, son. And, uh, and daddy needs Jesus to forgive him. And I want you to know that you sinned. You did, you sinned. And uh, daddy also sins. And I want to remind you that you can have forgiveness of your sins in Jesus. And don't ever correct your children, try not to, without the gospel. Without the gospel. Because you, the idea isn't to make moral kids merely. It's to make loving servants of Jesus. Gospel kids. So let's do that. Uh, number four, you love your children by the way you look at them. Pretty practical. Uh, but um, honestly, um, you can look at your kids in a certain way 
and your eyes say it all. You don't have to say anything. You, your eyes can say, I love you, I'm proud of you, or your eyes can say, I'm disappointed in you and I'm frustrated with you. And all of those can be appropriate at times. But on the whole, on the whole, the trajectory, the, sort of the big thing that your kids need to be seeing constantly is that you love them. And that there's joy in your eyes, more than anger and disappointment and frustration. And they need to see that. Number five, you love your children well by touching them. By touching them. Be affectionate with your kids. Dads, I'm especially talking to some of you. Um, love your, hug your kids. Kiss your kids. Um, that, that's a manly thing to do when done appropriately. You need to do that. If God has blessed you with sons and daughters, hug them, hold them, kiss them. God designed children for affection and with a need for affection, especially male affirmation, especially dads who are raising daughters. You give them the right affirmation. And then they won't go and look for that with some punk kid somewhere who's going to violate them because their dad was never affectionate. That's on you, dad, part of it. Part of it's on you because you didn't love, you didn't show affection appropriately to your daughter. So do that. Don't make that mistake. If you're making that mistake now, fix it. Um, another good point here is just so helpful. Take your kids out on a date. Let me embarrass my brother here for a second. I love this. Uh, Mike Jones takes his kids out. Um, uh, once a week, each each child, and he reads a certain book with each of them, and he's he has ice cream with them, or he'll have a milkshake, or he'll just go somewhere and eat. I love that example, and I've been really encouraged by you, brother, and I want to do the same thing. Um, and and uh, Christy does the same thing, but it's just we need to do something like that. Implement that. Date your kids. Take them out. Spend time with them. And that's the sixth thing. You love your kids by spending time with them. This is a painful, uh, painful one for us. I, I read a secular survey that said this this week. Five to eight-year-olds, this is crazy, secular survey. Five to eight-year-olds spend less than an hour a week in focused time with mom and dad. And honestly, a lot of those kids don't even have mom or dad. It's just one. But 20 hours a week in front of the TV. And, and that may explain this. Reader's Digest did a survey with four and five-year-olds and asked them the same question, asked them this question. If you had to choose to give away your daddy or your TV, what would it be? And 33% said, I'd rather give away my daddy. You know why? Because the dad's not involved. Who cares? I'll get rid of dad. I mean, like TV's always there for me. Dad's not, but TV's always there. And it's more fun anyway. I have more fun. You... You compete with your TV, Dad. You compete with that TV, and you show your kid that you're way more fun and entertaining than that TV. Number seven, you love your kids by blessing them rather than cursing them. You say, duh, isn't that kind of obvious, man? I mean, what in the world are you talking about? I don't curse my kids. Really? Consider the words that we use with our kids. Have you ever stopped to think about uh, what you, what's our kids hear? Some of the things that come out of our mouths. Put that down. Stop that right now. Shut up. I don't care what you're doing. Come here right now. Listen to me. Give me that. Don't touch that. Go away. Leave me alone. Can't you see I'm busy? Not like that. What's wrong with you? Boy, that was really dumb. Can't you do anything right? Hurry up. We don't have all day. What's the matter with you? Can't you hear anything? I don't know what I'm going to do with you. Now, we wouldn't talk to a stranger like that. We wouldn't talk hardly to a dog like that. And yet we say those things to the precious kids that God has given us. But friends, those words don't build up. They tear down. They kill and curse. Number eight, we love our kids by just having fun with them. That's pretty spiritual, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Just have fun with your kids. Like, you don't always have to be in the Bible having family devotions with them. Have fun with your kids. Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time to laugh and a time to make the heart merry. Teach your kids to love the Lord Jesus and have fun with them. Make your house a fun place to be. I, I, I'm blessed that I, was grown up, I grew up in a home like that where it was fun. And you know what? When your kids get old... They'll want to come back and visit you. And guess what? They'll bring their grandkids too because they'll remember that was a fun place to be. And finally, number nine, you love your children by admitting when you're wrong. Just being humble. I, 
I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Those are seven beautiful words. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? When you do this, you teach your kids how to repent and how to be humble and broken before God for their own sin. This is hard, but it is so important. Your children will not think less of you for doing this. If you're a macho man, your kids will think more of you for doing that. They'll say, my dad's a real guy. And he knows that he's jacked up and he needs Jesus. So uh, take that all of your glory of being jack- of your jacked upness and show it in front of your kids and show them your need for Jesus. Because as I said, if you turn to Christ, they will turn to Christ. And by doing this, you're introducing your children to a perfect parent. And you know who that is? It's not you. It's God. It's God the Father. And teach them about God's faithfulness and God's love and God's affection and care for his children. Excite their hearts with the character and grace of God. But here's the thing. If you're going to do that, you have to be in awe of God yourself. And that's why the most important gift you can give your children is your own transformed presence. Transformed by God. If they see if you're checked out spiritually, if you're not walking closely with God, you're giving your kids a really, really kind of junky sort of example. Love your kids well by showing them that you are thrilled with God. And so, and so that's hard. So dads here, here, moms, dads, here's the time for repentance. Okay. Let's get home and let's rework some things and let's start, start displaying spiritual disciplines in front of our kids in a way that shows them that we love God and he's the priority. Let's do that. And God can help us. May God help us all do that. And finally, for many of you this morning, I don't know you. And uh, some of you, I don't know your past. Uh, I don't know your background. Uh, I don't know what you've gone through, but I know this. Um, There's a perfect father in heaven. And he loves sinners. And, And if you will simply cling to him through his son, Jesus, he will not turn you away. He will not. And so some of you have not had good dads. And you're, you've, of God's love is pretty messed up because you just, you can't process how God could love you. I mean, you just can't because your dad never loved you. And you don't get this whole thing about a father. But let me tell you that this God, this father will never turn you away. He will receive you in his family. He will keep his word. He will never leave you. He will never, ever, ever forsake you. And so my final plea to you is, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know God, um, he warmly invites you to come. You just come. You just repent. You just get on your knees and just say, that's the kind of dad, that's the kind of father I want. So may God bless you all richly uh, this week as you try and strive to be faithful moms and dads. And kids, you guys seek Jesus and obey your moms and dads. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's so good. It's so nourishing, and we are very grateful for it. Now take this word and drive it deeply in us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. As a response, let's stand and sing that new song we did today, Always Forgiven. shown me His grace, love, and mercy now and forever I am your child freely you pour out your loving kindness Father of grace you servant and how much less to be your child it's an appropriate thing to say to God 
after what we've just heard about servants and their masters and fathers and their children. So let's sing that. I don't deserve to be your servant. I don't deserve to be your servant. How much less? And how much less? To be your child. Anger and wrath. Anger and wrath. Your condemnation. Should be my portion. Should be my portion. My just reward. Never have seen it. seated for a minute and I'm going to give you a couple of announcements Um, and we're going to end with a word of prayer um, instead of a benediction um, and I'll tell you why in just a second Um, but just real quick uh, the book of the month is all by Paul David Tripp I encourage you to go out and grab that Um, we're talking about being dads and moms that are in awe of God it'll be a great place for you to start is just get that book in you and uh, see if that can begin to fuel your heart and uh, stoke it uh, for more of God. And then number two, obviously we have a business meeting tonight. It's exciting that we're going to um, do that. We've got a, a really good budget to put before you. We're excited and thankful that we are debt-free as a church. God's been so merciful to us. It was a night to celebrate. Come out tonight, 5 p.m. for that. And also, we have an opportunity to vote on the election of three new deacons, which is exciting. And the men that are up for that, um, that we will consider for that this evening will be Joe Saulwester, Cliff Boswell, and Lester Cantrell. So come and be a part. Um, I know you love those men, and so be a part of that. And the last thing I want to do is close in prayer. And I want to pray for Gary Lawless and for Hope Long. Uh, Our sister Hope has surgery on Tuesday. And, um, you know, I just want you to identify with them for a minute. You could be sitting in the service this morning and listening to uh, all this stuff on parenting. But if you're in their shoes... Every five seconds, you're thinking about yourself, your condition. Not in a selfish way, but just like, it's just so weighty. And it's hard to even think about anything else because the world just comes to a halt. And so here's, here's Hope, and she's going to have surgery, and we're going to pray for you, Hope, and that God would eradicate any sickness in your body. And for Gary, that God would step in And you say, the doctors say it's stage four and whatever else. None of that matters to God. God can step in and absolutely heal a man. And he can grant him more life. So let's pray to that end. Father, uh, because you are El Shaddai, God Almighty, because you are Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals, and because you, Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord who heals us of all of our diseases. And those mean physical, terminal illnesses. 
And that may or may not come in this life, but we know absolutely it will come on the new earth. And so we know that promise is true in Scripture. But we pray for an inbreaking of that now. And so we're not ashamed to pray because you're sovereign. You can do whatever you want to do. And of course, we will submit to you, of course. But we pray that you would eradicate cancer in the lives of two of our dear sheep. Eradicate it. Speak it out of existence for your glory, O God. And for hope, would you guard her heart and mind that she would not live with anxiety or worry or fear, but know that you're sovereign. And for you, eradicating cancer is nothing. And for Gary, may you fill him with joy and peace in believing and trusting in you, O God. We love you, Lord. And may we leave in the power and sweetness of your presence. In Christ's name, amen.